This episode of the Coffee Podcast is brought to you with support from Expressing Origin and Vuna Origin Consulting. Digital Coffee Future is where coffee players share knowledge and tools on digitalizing coffee. Visit the platform at www.digitalcoffeefuture.com. This initiative was brought to you by Expressing Origin and Vuna Origin Consulting. Listening to The Coffee Podcast. This is the Coffee Science Series Coffee Data and Digitalizing the Coffee Sector. This episode is what we might call in my coffee drinking community a one in one. When you order a one in one, you get a macchiato and an espresso. In this episode, we have a one in one. First, we have a discussion about data and coffee that raises questions around accessibility. Then we have a conversation about coffee and digitalization. Digitalization is a word I stumble over a lot, so just expect it to happen. It's my honor to introduce our first guest, Vera Espindola Rafael, the Director of Strategic Initiatives at Azahar Coffee Company and Board Director at the Specialty Coffee Association and the Coffee Science Foundation. My relation with coffee and data is filled with love. I actually started (laughs) in coffee by researching data of coffee. It was for me an eye-opening experience to see what it entailed to produce coffee. I think it was that time that I also learned so much of the quality and the sensory piece of coffee. So that's how I actually got into coffee, through data. You said you have this love experience with coffee data, um, and you've you've come across a ton of data in your research. You know, we could say you've sifted through a lot of this. What have you learned from that experience, touching data with your own hands, so to speak? It depends a bit on the type of research that I've done in the past or data that I came across from projects and programs. But I think what I most learned is that it, it is essential at the end of the day to actually, you know, execute the work that we do with producers in every shape or form. And, you know, data is, it really depends on, on the work that you do that, you know, you actually get data in. But I think in every program, in every project, and I would assume and also in every company and organization, you have to have a good insight on the data of your coffee activities in order to move forward in your work. Let's make it really simple for people, uh, including myself. When we're talking about coffee data, what would be an example of like a data point or something we might record? The data that most often we actually capture and work with on a day-to-day basis that many of us do is, for example, price points. And, and also, for example, production number, yield numbers, export numbers, um, import numbers, consumption numbers. 
but also we should not forget it's not always a number. It can also something be descriptive. So an interpretation or uh, of a response of a question that one mm, poses. Okay. Yeah. So it's a wide variety of, of information that um, is actually data. So there's all these data types. There's maybe sometimes an answer to a survey question, which might be like a short answer. So maybe a sentence. Maybe sometimes there's descriptive uh, responses that are a little longer. Maybe sometimes it's just a yes or no. Sometimes it's a number. So there's all kinds of data from what I can understand. You've had a lot of this sort of information come across your table. You've analyzed it. You've looked at it. Is data good enough by itself? Or does it matter how we collect that data? It most certainly does matter. Um, I think at the end of the day, uh, when we talk about data, you know, it's qualitative or it's quantitative data. And you want to make sure that it's unbiased as possible. And the reason why I say this is because often data needs to be represent a wide variety of people or um, product or whatever you you try to research in that sense. And I think that you really need to or design well your model of of research or what you want to actually understand from your question in order to have the data as representative as possible of that specific question. Because you can can set your own boundaries, so to say, um, as much as you want to. The work that I've done in the past mostly is related to a right group of individuals. So that piece of knowing who you will interview or collect from is an important piece also of the work. Sounds like there's this sort of symbiotic or symbiotic relationship between the data that you have and the questions that you ask. So maybe you have to understand what data you have, understand that it's reliable so that you can know how to ask the right questions. But are there also experiences where you don't have the data? And in those cases, what do you have to do? Oh, that most definitely. For example, I would say not having the data or you post a question and there is no data or you post a question and there is no actual answer to it, that in itself is already a response to your question. And that's a learning point. What you can do is basically use that information already as it's maybe not what you wanted to, but that is already an answer. And I will give you an example. Most recently, I had to um, also collect some data from Central America and, and, and have that present for a webinar. There was no data. And if there was data, it was really no. old. Yeah. That is already an insight. And that's uh, and often people sometimes don't even mention that. But I always say it's important for us to understand what is there and what is not. And I think, and, and I mm. reference also the, for example, a data point like the year, because most likely in the work that we do in coffee, that is also an important piece, the reference point of a year, uh, because that gives you an indication in which time frame we are talking about that that data mm. point was relevant, right? It is also important to share that for the sector, for this industry to also know what's there and what's not. It sounds like you can ask a question about coffee, about anything in coffee, really. And if the data is not there, that we should treat that like it's a response to our question. Exactly. Is that okay? Wow. Yeah, I've I've actually not thought of of it that way. So when we come to conclusions, when data is not there, it's kind of saying more than we might think. 
because we're counting on like maybe a data set at exactly. the end of the day saying, yes. oh, at least I have this data set. But we're saying, oh, we have nothing. But the fact we have nothing means something. Yes. For me, that has yeah. been a tremendous um, way of, of looking at it and not just discarding it or wanting to be even sometimes judgmental about it. It's more of understanding, okay, so yeah. why isn't it there? And then the other question is, what can we do to have that data in? So for example, also recently, the the women's chapter of the of IWCA, uh, which is the International Women uh, Coffee uh, Association, the Mexican mm-hmm. chapter reached out to me and also asked me if, if I would knew that if how many women, for example, were working in, in Mexico in coffee. And, you know, there is no data. This, there, there is actually no data on that. And that is, mm, um, yeah. from my perspective, also telling that what we don't have, we need to work on. Um, mm-hmm. And we need to push also for that to happen. Who has the data typically that you're looking for? And why is that question important? The data that I have found. So we assume that there are institutions, that there are, um, be it either coffee institutions, be it international organizations that have this data in place in order for us to use. Unfortunately, because the history of coffee has been sometimes so dynamic, to put it that way, we don't have really one source that contains everything, nor does it make that much sense to have one one source because it is produced by various institutions, NGOs, companies, and everyone. What for me is concerning is that we often don't know what is there. So we don't sometimes know that either certain data already exists, research already been, has been done, because it hasn't been trickled down to a wider audience. Now, I do believe that certain uh, work by NGOs um, and institutions have done you know, a lot to share information. For me, it still is, it's, it's very frustrating to still see that the majority of the information or data is still not that widely shared. So if it is, it still reaches a certain amount of people. And I would say to this is that the, the reason why it sometimes only reaches certain people, because when it's shared, often only a certain type of audience is thought of. It's like, well, why should we share it with others? No, we only target like a, a piece of the audience. And I think mm-hmm. we forget that the audience is much wider than that. We forget that although we don't see it as a creator of content, it could be that other individuals, organizations can actually use the information in ways we haven't yet understood. I see this frequently. And I would say that that is something that we need to be very mindful of because I'm, I'm simply now talking about the, on the content piece. I'm not even starting on the piece regarding uh, availability of, of data in, in certain languages. Yeah, you're, you're speaking, it sounds like, at least in this moment, primarily about the access to data across the industry. Is that right? Versus filtered down into a size that it's, it doesn't fit all audiences. But you're not, we haven't tackled the, the issue of a report or visualizations being bilingual or something mm-hmm. like that. Exactly. And for me, that is shameful. I mean, and, and, and I use that word because we are in 2020. We have the tools to do this in a quick way than we used to. We have been able to produce so much content and to still see certain 
articles, scientific articles, or just books only being published in one language, English most, most often, for me is that that's a way of not giving access of that information to the sector because the majority of the people, um, for example, in the region where I live, still do not talk English. And I think that, that for me is, is a, a huge bottleneck. I guess it's one thing to say, you know, if I had a coffee shop and I wrote a book for my neighborhood, okay, and I wanted my neighborhood to read my coffee book, it would be fine maybe that it's not in Spanish if, if my neighborhood doesn't speak Spanish. But what we're talking about is industry data and industry visualizations and information that is only published in English becoming a barrier for entire regions that don't speak the language, right? That's, that's more of the point. Most definitely, that, that is the point. Sometimes what have people even ask me if when I share an article on my social media, which is in English or, or even in Tweed, you know, I, I do sometimes get messages, you know, people that know me, like, what are you talking about? What are you referencing to? Should I read it? Should I try to Google translate it myself? You know, and yeah. I think that, that for me, that, that is, um, I'm very mindful of it. Um, and um, it's frustrating not to be able to then share perhaps a link in, in Spanish. It limits the conversation between us as a sector because we're not able to, we're not, we're not having access to the same data and insights in order for us to continue the conversations that we have in yeah. coffee. I could see where a language barrier, you know, so for example, like the podcast, um, it'd be very difficult for me to translate all my episodes and, mm -hmm. and all that because I'm one person, right, doing all this content. But when we come to talk about something like... Um, a data set. So we're talking about, you know, columns and rows. And maybe in that data set are things like uh, uh, farm size or what have you, but just to translate just those column names would be relatively simple. Is that part of what we're talking about? Or you feel like this is a this is a bigger, a bigger issue that we're seeing? It is slightly a bigger issue, because I do think that we need to be including in our work, also the work of a large, large group of people. And for, for the sake of this argument, I will, I will stick to Spanish. Last year, two amazing reports were published. One was of the International Coffee Organization, and one was of um, the Columbia Center by Jeffrey Sachs. There were two very relevant reports published. And both of these reports, for example, were supported by institutions in producing countries in Latin America. And unfortunately, both of these reports are not available in Spanish until this date. Mm. And mm -hmm. why is it for me and why we refer to your comment to these reports? Because these are basically reports where they use certain data, but this data you can interpret, interpret it until a certain level. And then the text becomes very helpful in your interpretation because some, some things mm -hmm. that you need to align or, or direct the point to and explain much more in, in, in a text what that actually means and how we can actually see it. And that text, mm -hmm. when you are not sharing that with, with the wider audience and, and you know, at the end of the day, still 70 to 80 percent of, of the coffees produced by countries in Latin America, that for me is a barrier. 
So what I did is, you know, I, I needed some of the of these uh, insights, and I translated it myself to Spanish. So, so, so I do think that there, are, as you correctly said, there are things that would be nice to have in in, in other languages. We should think also Spanish, French. Um, there are other languages, Portuguese, that are very relevant and necessary. And there, mm-hmm. and there are certain things that, that there, for me, it should just exist full stop. It's really, really sad that we're not able to, to include like a fixed thing that you do in your budget if you've got to produce something in English. Make yeah. sure that you also will be mindful about who else wants to read it. Yeah, that's a, that's a great insight, a great point. I'm wondering, have you learned things you did not expect to learn from the data or the visualizations that you created through that process? Or even the process itself, did you maybe learn things as you were collecting? The process always has has been an insightful process uh, and and a learning experience and the way on how you communicate with the person that is providing you information, data. I always, you know, when I sometimes present the work that that I've done, for me, it, it's not just a number. For me, I see the, the people that actually responded to me, the people that filled in that question and answered. And that process in itself and how you interact and how you communicate, that is always a learning process because I can only reflect so much in a data point. There's so much else which you can describe from the process itself, which you know I do try to share that inside through webinars or in the day when I actually went out more for coffee, I did it, you know, with, uh, over coffee, a cup of coffee. What I learned from the data itself is that although it gives you certain insight, you always need to take into consideration certain context. There Sometimes it's always like, but, the but word is sometimes it frustrates <laughs> me, for example. Yeah. But I know it's an important one to address because at the end of the day, we cannot collect data from everyone. So you need to be very understanding of that context and try to describe mm-hmm. that as much as possible to the people that are actually either reading it or either listening to you. Yeah, that's a great point. So the idea of it, it's always going to be a sample, or in most cases, what we're dealing with is a sample size, right? Getting the mm-hmm. whole population or all an example would be all coffee producers, right? Mm-hmm. Would be like, that's just not possible. Mm-hmm. So there's, it's always a sample and the description of that sample, how it was collected, all of that really matters in how we draw conclusions from the data, right? You've mentioned to me this danger in overgeneralizing coffee producers, considering, you know, farm size techniques, things like that. Can you tell us a little more about that observation that you've had? So I did my master's in development economics and I, I, I learned about economic modeling and I learned about econometrics, the statistics piece of this all. I'm not an expert in this. I always felt, and I want to mention this just to you know clarify <laughs> this point, is because I always, for me, these are hard uh, topics to actually get my master's in. It's, it's not natural to me, but I always find it, mm-hmm. for me, it's a puzzle. It's a puzzle that I want to put the pieces together and try to figure out what we can actually do about it. I love puzzles, by the way. I will go again that the context is so important when in this because what coffee has learned to me that although it is a commodity defined in this economic market, for me, every time when I do these studies 
on, for example, costs of production, my conclusion is this is not the definition of a commodity. This for me is a definition of a product that is every single harvest at every single lot produced differently. And, and that for me has been the reason why I sometimes have become not understanding why during my university years we have tried to put it in a box and label it commodity. Because for me, when I've gone to the field throughout my years, for me, it's never been a commodity. For me, every time it is, I understand we need it. I understand we need an average, but every single time it's a different context. And I will do mm. my best to provide insight as, as much as we can and provide these averages. And for example, in the Sustainable Coffee Buyer's Guide, we do so on a regional base. But I do think that it's we need to be very mindful. Coffee is not fully a commodity product in this, in that sense, you know, that's uniform, hmm. uniformly produced, you know, that's, I see. Yeah. that's not the case. Are you saying coffee's not like, the first thing that comes to my mind is corn, just because there's mm. so much corn production in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Are you saying like, it's, it's not like corn, like it's not um, sort of like, there's a few different varieties and really... I mean, I'm not a corn expert. I should probably stop there. Um, <laughs> are, are you saying like it's not corn because it, it's sort of more uniquely produced? Or, or I'm trying to understand more of what you're saying about why coffees shouldn't be considered a commodity. Yeah. So, so, when, you, so you, when you read the definition of a commodity, it's like the, the uniformity of a product, correct? And that applies from all the way from production, all the way from to process, to a product and let's let's stick it to a bag you know not a cup to a bag there are multiple interventions by producer that it's not uniform particularly when it comes to smallholders managing their lots when i ask for example to a producer so how much do you apply well depends a bit on the lot and okay so how many lots do you have well i have six okay what is your assessment on applying certain inputs well i look at the trees so he looks at every single tree on one specific lot well, there you go with your uniformity, because that means that it's not uniformly produced in a certain way. Mm-hmm. And this goes all the way, let's say, to parchment. I think corn is a good example. Sugar cane is another example in this that are... I'm not going to continue on corn. Let's stick to the sugar cane because I, you know, Mexican. <laughs> so I know that how many corn varieties there are there. And, and, you know, my mom will shoot me because she knows she has her corn lot. Um, <laughs> so let's take the sugar cane. It's 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 more uniformly produced. You can see these fields full of, full of of sugar cane, and and it's it's much more of a uniform product, sort of say. And there, certain people could even question us and say, well, it's also not you know uniformly produced. So I have questioned that. I've questioned why and who defined that coffee should fall under the box of commodity. Mm-hmm. It's a it's an interesting and I think an important question. This sounds like actually what would fall under a historical research question, something See, we might ask uh, a, a coffee historian. That'd be a good question. Yes. To question the, the very economics of coffee itself. Yes, yes. I, I will, I, it's a question that I've posed in, in the last years to myself and sometimes over 
over a mezcal with people around me. But I, I think that it is a question that's important to understand. I think the history in coffee, when it comes to the whole economic piece, and with economic piece and a you know design, I, I think it's important for us to understand how did the coffee trade started, and that's where you will start understanding that the reason why coffee was put as a commodity. And then the arrival of the ICO and the agreements and the quotas is a very interesting piece to follow as well. I agree with you. Yeah, all of that, too, is, uh, you know, uh, subject to coffee research, which requires, you know, the data. I think in, in the realm of historical research, the data tends to be uh, information from, you know, primary resources, secondary resources. And we know some historians who... who um, their expertise is in these things. And so this conversation can definitely continue. But you make a great point um, that coffee is declared a commodity. But in a lot of ways, when you start to look at the data and you start to aggregate, you lose the fact that a lot a lot of coffee farms are using different methods. They're doing what, what do we have, like uh, natural processes and mm-hmm. wash processes and all these kinds of ways to produce coffee that it, it doesn't quite make sense from a commodity I, perspective. I mean, even smallholders have not sometimes only one variety. They have either two or three. And mm-hmm. every single variety has its own way of um, managing that um, because it needs different things because it's a different variety in coffee. And the more we sometimes focus on those differences between in production, for example, rarities, the more I think that we're losing, we're basically, in that sense, winning the conversation piece of, you know, commodity versus artisanal. Yeah, we have, we, I, I really think as a sector, we need to um, not always accept things how they have been and also, you know, reflect on why things are as they are, understand that, and that we are in the space to also create change. Let's talk about impact. It's safe to assume that if we just have a bunch of information, if we just have... So say in coffee, we had all the information that we ever wanted. If we don't do anything with it, it's pointless. It's just head knowledge. There's no impact. So let's talk about first a perceived uh, potential issue that I've observed, which is... Well, let me just form it in a question. How -hmm. often do you notice producers or coffee you know, anybody involved on sort of the labor side of coffee, how often do you notice producers giving up their data? Oh, a lot of the times. Um, over the years, I've seen it happen a lot of the times. And I think I always say if, if things are transparent and things are clear for both of us, so both, let's say it's both parties, um, I would say it's, it's okay. But I often also think that producers sometimes don't understand what it means to share that information to know where it actually is going to. And and that that is for me concerning because they have a right to consent or not consent. Yeah, so like in the in the world of having a smartphone, okay? So anytime we download an app or you know, whatever we sign up for something, we always most cases we are clicking something that says I agree to the terms and conditions. Mm-hmm. Right. And so whenever an app is free, we can know that they're typically monetizing our data. They're monetizing information about us. Mm-hmm. So the question, the ethical question here is, is it OK, you know, to just show up 
and take information from producers without sort of their permission or even them understanding what you're doing um, or without benefiting even semi-immediately from that transaction. Because when we say, yes, I agree to the terms and conditions, you know, I signed up for a Gmail account and now I have access to email my friends and my family or coworkers, right? We get something immediately out of that. Mm -hmm. But to go and to go and ask somebody or just to collect information, just to show up and collect information about a anybody and their personal information is questionable at best. I guess <laughs> I don't know. I'm rambling now, but I think the idea is there, right? Where if we're going to give up information, since information can be sold, it can be used for profit, whoever that information belongs to, there's sort of this expectation that they should have the authority to say yes or no, or to benefit from that, uh, mm-hmm. that giving up of data. I, I, okay. I would say that even for me as a um, you know, user of a technology, I sometimes get these, you know, I download something and they ask me, consent and i'm like okay yes and then the next question is can we can we monitor your location for example and i'm like no you can't you know you I'm, I'm like why do you need to know that if you have not i have nothing to tell you about our location and i i think yeah. if and, and sometimes i spend more time in understanding what they're saying to me and i can definitely see it also that a producer does understand you but not necessarily knows what you're what you mean with that right so maybe they would say yeah sure you can use my name oh you want something else oh and, and that as well oh, okay so now i don't get it anymore and i think those checkpoints are important for producers because um it could be even that he's part of a research and he, that he's totally okay for it but we sometimes mm-hmm. don't spend enough time explaining exactly that he will not receive anything <laughs> he would just mm-hmm. give and that is important yeah. piece for me, um, because I actually, have, you know, I've come across producers who said, "Qué vas a hacer con mi información? What are you going to do with my information?" And I'm like, "Valid. <laughs> Let me sit down because this is a conversation I want to have with you, because yeah. he is mindful of that. He is a data point, and um, mm-hmm. it is important for him to understand because he." He, for example, will give the example of this particular producer said to me, it was from Guatemala, he said, there's so many people that sometimes pass by and I hardly any time see something back that shows me what has been done with that. You know, mm. he felt used yeah. and, and it's valid, you know, and I, and I do think that mm. if if we are in a sector that we are so concerned about the producers, we also need to be concerned about this. And it's not only, you know, oh, but when he had this interview, he should he should just consent to it. No, you know, we, really, we really need to be specific and transparent as possible. I expect that as a user of uh, applications and programs, he should also be have that right as well. That's a good that's a good point. So it's not just about collecting data for the sake of collecting data. We need to consider the impact on the people involved in that transaction. So um, I guess if we were a customer at a cafe and a cafe wanted to know what our favorite drink is, now that's kind of like a favorite, or that's like an easy data point, right? Mm -hmm. If you just polled all your guests and said, hey, what's your favorite coffee? And you could create a menu out of something like that, right? You could Mm -hmm. use that data to, to inform your business decisions. But in the realm of showing up to a producing region and just collecting information, that's not the same thing. And I think we need to 
acknowledge that, that there needs to be some kind of understanding or transparent agreement between the two parties, the one receiving the information and the one giving the information. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Do you think it, it can be tough? So, and you understand this because you've been a part of research that takes a long time to come to conclusions. And sometimes you have the data available to you, but in the process of collecting data, do you think it, that producers should see a more immediate benefit to giving up their data or, or their information? And what would that even look like? Almost definitely. I'm always such a critical person when I see certain work done and then my big mouth opens. And so for me, the, 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 you know, it's, it's, there are pieces of work that you do and sometimes not do and you learn and you learn from others. One of the things that I particularly wanted to do when it comes to collecting the data for a system, a coffee buyer's guide. And I said this to Tyler, I said, who's the CEO? Well, if we do this, I don't want to just collect data. I want to give something back at that point, moment of time, even if it's not necessarily me having processed within five minutes what they're saying to me, but I want to give something <laughs> back. Yeah. And you, did I have to think about it and, and see how to do that? And did it take me extra time? And was it like becoming like a full blown extra activity? Oh, yes. It was a whole team effort. And, um, but was it, completely gratifying and did we feel that we were doing the right thing yes we had to hmm, yeah. these are uh, particularly for this study where the producers that work with azahar and um, sell their coffee to azahar the majority of them so we wanted to make sure that it was an interaction so i give you something and you help me with this. So I, I took yeah. some some amount of time to explain what the intention was of the guide. But I also um, shared what we were actually going to be learning from them as a company and to the buyers of, of, the, of this coffee, but also what they could actually do with this data. That process was also for us and for me as a professional and for the team very helpful. It was a piece of our the relationship that we are managing with these producers and, and the openness. Because talking about your farm, talking about your family, talking how much you produce, talking about how much you um, what your income is, these are personal questions, you know, they, the farm mm -hmm. is theirs. It's the same if somebody asked me out of the blue, who they've never met. So what is your salary? <laughs> and I'm like, oh, <laughs> it's it's a personal question. These are personal questions. Yeah, so yeah. you need to you have a great point. Yeah, mm -hmm. you need to create um, this environment where we have this where in a very short amount of time, you need to create trust, right? So I try to incorporate in certain activities where they got to know me as a person and not just ask this independent person who's coming by, collecting data and leaving again. No, I think it's very important to create that trust because what we're trying to build is a tool for the next years to come. So that means that they will be contributors to this. And um, so currently we're just finishing up uh, the feedback that we're giving back to the producers. And, mm, and yeah. yeah, is it slow? Yeah, most likely it is slow for my, for, for my uh, <laughs> peace of mind, but it, at least I, feel, I know that we're doing it and I know that they received at that moment in time during the workshops content that they I, that I know because some of them have told me that they're actually using. Um, nice, okay. Yeah. And 
they're getting still getting their data processed in a way and and I think that for mm-hmm. me is um it's a team effort is but I feel very happy that we're actually taking our time to do that with them it's more collaborative that way exactly there's yes. more yeah yes. there's a there's a give and take okay yes yes we brought up the idea that it's a very personal question to say how much money do you make and yet I and I'm guilty of this actually I'm I'm gonna own this we talk about cost of production and what is cost of production and you know asking a producer how much money they make um we just toss all this around right it, some of us are tossing it around because it's an important conversation so i don't want to i don't want to minimize the the weight of the idea or the point but what do you think about the fact that we do this sort of thing what do you think about this gap and how we understand cost of production how would you recommend that we proceed forward so first of all, I think these conversations, we should have more to understand that part. We often talk it from an industry perspective as this is what we need to understand, right? We need to understand, basically, uh, you're not seeing my face, but I'm frowning. <laughs> you need to understand <laughs> why um, why you're not making enough with what we're giving you. It's a very patronizing way to say that, actually, because who are we to judge? Right. That that for me has been always the hardest pieces of these studies, because I don't want to I don't want to I don't like judging people. I, I, I prefer to understand where they're coming from. And and for me, there is indeed a gray area in all of this. So mm-hmm. cost of production in that sense uh, is is an important way to to understand what the situation is, um, where how coffee came about. Uh, in a lot of these countries, which are which has not been a native crop for us, and seeing that that we didn't fully understand or haven't fully understood the history and connected with the economic piece has been for me that I would say you know I tried to explain that piece where where we have seen that we have we have we traded coffee for many years without considering the labor of the majority of the hands that were actually producing the coffee, simply because mm-hmm. how coffee was, in a sense, cultivated in our countries. And, mm-hmm. if, and if you know that, you know now why certain, still, certain, certain elements or activities still are not being calculated fully in the cost of production. And I thought that, you know, um, when I did a, a similar study in 2005 in, in Guatemala, I thought by now things would be different. It's sad to see that that the invisible labor, the invisible hands still remain invisible. For me, they're not invisible, they're quantifiable. And, and that's my aim to address and, and show that there's so much more in coffee in, in terms of numbers that we're not considering and we're not understanding still. Our listeners might think we've, we've gone off the road. Okay. We're talking about data and coffee. Mm. They might think we've gone off the road. Do you think we've gone off the road or are we still talking about data? We're still talking about data. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I, I, and I, I hear that, you. Yeah. <laughs> I want to make the connection that it, it, it's funny to me. I pulled my, I pulled my audience and data is one of the least interesting uh, topics for the audience that I pulled. And mm. I thought, well, it was just above health. <laughs> right it's like is coffee good for my health and people are like eh, i don't care and and then it was data was right above and i was like there's so much power in telling the story 
that there is with data. And so I wanted to make that connection that coffee data, I think, is interesting on its own, but there's there's a great purpose for it. And I think you, you did a great job talking about that just now, talking about the, you could look at it like there are data points that are missing, but there's reasons there's, that, there's, that that information is missing or is not being considered and it needs to be considered. And we need the data. We need the collecting of that data, that collaborative effort between a collectors of data and the givers of data to, to build a better future for coffee people, right? Yes, yes. Um, I just want to add to that, that I understand that, that we sometimes, you know, in in the sector, we maybe are not doing that good of a job to actually make the case for the data, you know, and um, sometimes people say, but it's there, we know it's this, and it's data is, is, is not static, data is dynamic, and uh, we know this, and I just look around you, you know, it's things are not the same, and things don't cost the same. If you just take that into consideration, just simple elements. We're like, why wouldn't would we not invest in having this data becoming dynamic every single year? Because things change every single year. Things change from month to month. It's the same for producers in a certain region. That's a really good point. We are coming to the end of our conversation. And this is the point where we turn and we'll talk about a little bit about what you're working on and what you're up to. And how can our listeners, the coffee people all, all over the world, how can they be a part of what you're doing? Currently, <laughs> what I'm working on is at, at Azahar with the next version of a Sustainable Coffee Buyer's Guide, a piece of for what the work that I'm doing still from the, the data from uh, 2018 is I'm, I'm feeding that currently back to the producers. So uh, because of the pandemic, we're doing this on doing the WhatsApp sessions and explaining them what we found on their farm. And then the next piece is actually um, collecting the data of 2019 with the same farmers in order to see if there's still different changes. So again, you know, it's through um, WhatsApp, mostly conversation uh, that we have when it's either very early for them or very, you know, at the end of the day when they finish their farm activities. And it's important to do to, st- to still keep going and doing this, even if it's it's not the ideal situation. And they know. So that's that's a good thing. It's not something the pandemic is not something strange to them. We're all in the same in a mm-hmm. similar situation. So it's very easy to understand our intention to continue with them this conversation. And they're very willing to to engage with us on that. Some some people have asked me, so how can I be part of this? And I think we all need to become more mindful of, uh, of of the work that's done. I think we have done work that has brought us to this point where a lot of professionals talk about that piece. And I think mostly that knowing what is really being paid to the producer is an important question to ask. Uh, many would say, well, the consumer doesn't understand. Well, the consumer will never ask that. Some maybe do. Some maybe are interested. And it's because we never sometimes share this information or in a, in a way that they would understand it. But think about that piece. Think about, you know, about, you know, us as a sector, also something confronting them of in a very blunt way of this is what actually a producer is earning. This is what he received for his coffee. And that's that. No no judgment, but just sharing that information and, and mm-hmm. having that conversation with each other is an important one to have. I would say that very much is needed from a transparent point of view. We need to become more transparent. You know, FOB for yeah. me is certainly not enough in this conversation. I very much enjoy doing the work 
to collect the data. One of the first things that I wanted to do is to continue to do that piece, to continue collecting the data from producers, to feed it back, to more elaborating that piece. And the best advice at that point was one of my professors saying to me, I know that you really want to do that. That's, that is what your passion currently lies in. Um, but you also have to understand what the needs and priorities are for NGOs and institutions when using the data. So you have to understand that other piece of it because mm -hmm. their programs and policies, how can I say this? Understanding that piece is important to also then explain to the producers why certain things are being done. And mm -hmm. yes, you have that now that field experience, but you need to go back and, and understand where it's coming from and how these questions are put in a framework and how that is piece is set up. For me, that was very valuable and I actually followed that. I think it's, it's for me, it really comes full circle um, since last year, you know, working again on this topic and, and specifically the data coming out of this has really gave me an insight and, and it's for me, it's a before and after, you know. Did you want to share a main takeaway as well? I would say definitely being mindful on how we create content for others. For others, I mean, yes, for our immediate audience in, in some cases, but also that usually our communities where we work in are, are every day becoming more bigger than we think of. And this means that creating it in a language that is understandable, and I'm not only simply talking about English or Spanish or Portuguese or French, I'm simply creating a, a language that for us is even understandable among even non-native English speakers, but also then creating additional content that actually works and also in our language. Creating content, keep creating data and make sure that you always feed it back also to the ones that are giving it to you. Our next guest is Sarah Maroki of Vuna Origin Consulting, who you may have noticed is also a sponsor of this discussion of coffee and data on the Coffee Podcast. Sarah has her BA in philosophy and politics, specializing in international development. She's worked in East Africa, Kenya, specifically with NGOs. She moved to the private sector, which led to Sarah working in coffee and specifically specialty coffee for a specialty coffee importer. That work involved an origin office in Tanzania. She continues telling the story. My very first assignment was to help the local cooperative build a washing station. I thought it was going to be a one-year gig and turn out to be almost now over 10 years in coffee. I worked in multiple roles. Uh, so first I was in Tanzania. I was overseeing the supply chain in East Africa. Then I moved to Portland, where I was overseeing the entire global supply chain. In that period of time, when I was working for this importer, we had a built-in traceability software, and that was the entire backbone of the company. So we were able to monitor and evaluate and follow up all of our transactions and contracts and pricing and quality on the software. And I felt 
since then that it was one of the hidden weapon of of the company and that's where i started to really appreciate the, the power that data and digitalization can bring even more so when you are impact driven in 2015 i left the united states moved back to europe um, specifically in amsterdam and i started vuna origin consulting and uh, in the first few years, I was just really busy making sure that I have enough work and that I build my network. But for the past year and a half, I remembered how valuable the the software and and digital tools at my previous employer. And I wanted to make sure that I pick it up myself for my own company. So I embark on my own digitalization journey and continue to invest in digitalization, especially now during the pandemic. It became so, so valuable, so important to make sure that uh, people like me continue having a job uh, even uh, you know when we can't travel. Why were you dissatisfied with some of the impact you were seeing with NGOs and the field you were in at the time? I think it has to do with what I call the dependency syndrome, whereby international donors come into a specific, let's say, community and start rolling out projects, community-based projects, based on what they think are the most important initiatives that need to be rolled out in order to achieve impact, which could be social or even economic or from an educational perspective. While this sounds good on paper, uh, there was a dependency syndrome whereby people are sort of waiting for the next project to start in order to either seek employment or participate in workshops and trainings. And I, I didn't like that very much. And on the other hand, I met with quite a lot of people within the network that uh, made me notice that uh, they were not so interested in some of the projects we were rolling out. They really wanted us to help them uh, find a new business opportunity, increase their revenue stream, or find a job. And and I felt that that would have been a more dignified way of of supporting people um, and and helping them find their role in the working uh, environment. Um, And I felt that a lot of the projects that we did in the end didn't really create uh, opportunities for people. I wanted to try to do something different. I'd like to work into the conversation defining some terms. Obviously, an important word we should define, I think, in the context will be uh, digitalization. Mm -hmm. So let's um, let's go ahead and define that. Um, To me, digitalization can be explained simply as the act of converting actions that we used to do offline on an online space. That, that is what digitalization is. So in, in the context of coffee, that can take so many different meanings depending on where you are in the coffee, coffee value chain and the role that you play in the specific activities. And some people say, well, you know, how can you convert coffee processing online. And of course, there are certain things that you just cannot do uh, online right now. But a lot of, for example, of the recording of data and information still happens manually on or on Excel files. So these are some of the actions that we can convert online. 
And then, okay. yeah. And is that with an emphasis on utilizing the internet or is it primarily moving things to automated systems? I think it's both. I think it's definitely using the internet, using softwares, so using apps. And how could this benefit, um, maybe generally speaking, how could this benefit all players in the coffee sector? I think, for first of all, is time-saving. It's true that converting offline activities to online activities can be an extremely cumbersome process, especially when the, the processes are not clear. But let's let's assume that your processes are, are clear through digital tools and automation. There is an incredible cost-saving and, and time-saving opportunity, along with the fact that, of course, through the digital tools, you are allowed to crunch data and analyze data and create insights on that data at a much faster and, and more efficient uh, efficient way. So I think that that alone is probably one of the biggest benefits. So the ability to turn data into insights and therefore make you know the data driven decisions faster would be a uh, an attractive attribute of something like this process um, throughout the copy industry. Correct. I'll give you an example. We know how tough sometimes for producer organization is to negotiate prices. Oftentimes they are price uh, takers, not really price givers. So they're often in a situation where they have to make a quick decision whether or not this price you know, works for them or not. The most efficient way to do it is to look at what would be the expected margins on that contract and whether or not you can break even on that contract. That requires you having all sorts of information around your cost of production, uh, milling costs, export costs. You'd be surprised how many producer organizations don't have those information at their fingertips, not because they don't know what margins are or what the break-even point is, but simply because their data is not updated on a daily basis and maybe it's not organized. Mm, yeah. So then how do you really make a decision on price where you don't know what your margins would be and how long would it take you to get there? So that's the kind of decision that we should be able to take uh, fast and, 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 and rapidly and have very minimum margin of error. I think a lot of the times people rely on their experience or on their know-how, just you know, being in coffee for a really long time. But you'd be surprised how many decisions are taken without, without the, the data to back it up. When we think about data in coffee, what are the kinds of things we should think about? Because I think data can become a really abstract idea and it'd be helpful to put some handles on it. It is it is a very very vague and, and, and broad idea. It can mean everything and nothing at the same time. And I think that we as an industry we haven't really talked about the role that data plays in the value chain. I think that the, the thing that is most relevant right now is how we would be classifying uh data, right? So you look at the classic um right off the internet classification policy, right? You have public data, internal, confidential, restricted, and so forth. And I wonder if we could at least start having this type of classification at an industry level. There is a lot of uh, debate, for example, about uh, data privacy and, and data consent, which 
uh, are not the, the most exciting topics, but are necessary topics. I think from a classification perspective, we haven't done a lot of work. We haven't decided what information should be public and what uh, should remain internal, confidential, or restricted. If we look at the classification policy in relation to the conversations we have in the industry around building a more sustainable or equitable value value chains that rely on pricing mechanisms that start from cost structure analysis, then I would say that uh, a lot of the data around the, you know, prices uh, could be public, anonymous, but public, which I know it's a very controversial uh, approach because a lot of companies feel that that's still data that they need in order to remain competitive. And then you just have to look at the value chain and look at all the key phases of the value chain and think about, well, when you are at the production stage, what are some of the information that we want to consider, right? Uh, So let's talk about production, for example. Uh, Let's talk about value distribution, in other words, pricing, and then go all the way down to, I would call, consumer trends and data. I think that there is, as more and more companies are online and online sales are growing, there is a whole new data set of information around uh, consumer preferences and choices. It would be great to have that data more more consolidated and now just when it comes out from a very expensive report done by some uh, market, uh, market consulting company or the Specialty Coffee Association. Mm-hmm. Where do you believe most data currently stored in coffee exists? It's a very interesting question. I've been thinking about it, and it's hard to give a straight answer because I think a lot of the production information is actually stored in paper records and and books, a lot of single files, so Excels, Word docs. I think still a lot of data is there, and it not, I'm not trying to suggest that only producer organizations um, haven't figured out a way to digitalize their information. I think also a lot of importers and exporters still rely a lot on single single files, uh, maybe not paper file, paper records, but definitely single files. And I think uh, roasters are probably also facing the same challenge. Then, of course, there is some data that is in the clouds, and I think we're we're seeing an incremental growth there. So I would be very surprised if uh, we still have companies that don't have uh, cloud-based data storage systems. Not all the data goes up in the cloud, and it's probably not organized in a way that it can actually produce insights. Yeah, like how you how you structure the Excel sheet, for example, would really matter, and how you could actually use it to... Yeah. to build visualizations or to put it into another system. Yeah. So would you mind giving a few examples of data collection you think would be important across the industry? Just some examples for us to kind of chew on. Like what, what kind of data should we be really thinking about collecting? An example would be like what for a producer, what would be a good data point for them to collect on a daily basis or co-op or exporters, et cetera? At the producer level, the data that they should definitely consider collecting or digitalizing is their cost of production. I'm not suggesting that producers don't know their cost of productions because I don't think that's necessarily the case. I think producers are 
just through experience. Know the, the minimum common denominator to break even. With that said, I think any tool that allows them to categorize and organize uh, cost of production would be really valuable. Along with, um, obviously, under the cost of production, you would also look at things like uh, investments in inputs uh, and so forth. Any production data as well, so yield, turnout, I think that information is good when you want to do projections and uh, harvest evaluations, you want to decide if and how you want to invest money back in the farm. So having that uh, historical data set can be very helpful. You know, to me, when it comes to the cooperative, I am less inclined in looking at traceability per se. So they have to know exactly, you know, who is delivering them coffee and so forth. Not because I don't think that's important, but I think any data on traceability should really be driven by the market. So depending on which segment in the coffee sector you work on uh, or you want to be operating in, say, commercial versus niche, there's a whole different set of traceability requirements um, that you should be fulfilling. So it really depends mm-hmm. on on that. I don't encourage producer organizations to collect uh, more data, you know, whether it's from their members or uh, how they are segmenting coffee lots and so forth, unless required by the market, because otherwise it'd be very hard to recover the cost of data collection. I think that's a really good point you bring up is um, it's sort of forgotten that data collection is a cost. You know, it's not something that's just assumed to be collected, that somebody has to properly collect that data and that costs money because it costs time or it just costs time you know, depending on how that's structured. So that was a really good point. Thank you. I definitely think data collection is very costly and time and time consuming. So it, it really should be a clear demand from the market for specific data. But producer organization definitely need to collect uh, data around, you know, their, their collections, their sales, their price fixing, and their financing. And through the collection of different sets of data under these categories, you can make, I would say, more more data-driven decisions around how to run your business. Because in the end, whether you're a cooperative or you run a dry mill, at the end of the day, you want to break even with a with a margin. So that's the data that to me has to be there. And you'll be surprised how often this data is um, not organized, not consolidated, not automated, not updated daily. Sometimes sales or volume records are updated on a weekly basis. That uh, that exposes the cooperative to a ton of risk exposure without even knowing that they are taking risk. So that for mm-hmm. the producer organization. When it comes to importers and, and exporters, again, I think the data really is around um, basically the movement of coffee. Um, I think that's super important. That's basically the role of importers and exporters to move coffee from A to B and be able to categorize and classify coffees and keep them traceable. So it's a little bit more simplified. Now, of course, I don't, I don't want to suggest that importers have it easy. Um, not at all. Um, it can be an extremely complex, uh, complex task, but they, they are the custodians of the traceability requirements that come from the market. So they, they are probably the first ones that need to enforce that. And roasters, I would, I mean, just, uh, you know, just like uh, everybody else, your own financial data, of course. 
I would love to have historicals of, you know, the, the prices that they have paid, the kind of coffees that they have sold, um, because I think that these are informations that can enlighten our industry on what the consumers are really after. They are they are the only ones that really speak with consumers. So their role is is critical. But I think there's a little bit of missed opportunity there. And I think you made a good point earlier, you know, um, what is your break even point? That's a that's a good thing to know, no matter where you are in the coffee chain, right? Like a cafe, not knowing where their break even point is, they're also in a position they don't know if a decision they're making is a significant risk or not. And so collecting data about like, how much money am I making today in sequence and et cetera, right? That, that's important information, whether you're a producer or you're a cafe owner. Yeah, it sounds like uh, yeah. almost, uh, you know, it's 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 so obvious that sometimes we overlook it and we yeah. go straight into extremely uh, complicated uh, data collection processes without really asking ourselves, well, how is this going to help my business or the partners that I want to work with? It also gives you access to know to ask a, a leading question, which would be why? Why is that coffee moving so fast? Because maybe it's assumed it's moving for XYZ reason, but when you look closer, you dig deeper into the data, you realize, oh no, it's actually something totally different. And so you made a good point there where if we improperly interpret that data and then go back to the producer and say, well, hey, everybody wants this kind of coffee, but at the end of the day, that's not the underlying reason. We've now you know, sort of passed off a, a cost maybe to the producer where that cost isn't an investment they should actually be making. So that that would be a dangerous mistake to make. There's a big difference between providing insights and information and, and, and giving opinions or trusting your gut. You know, sometimes I do have to say, this is just your opinion. <laughs> you don't have any yeah. data to back it up, yeah. especially when you go to origin, it can be very detrimental. I do want to talk a little bit about impact. It's my opinion, if all you do is collect data and nothing happens with it, it's basically pointless. Right. So yeah, that there's probably some qualifiers to that. But I, how do you think we measure impact? Um, I know you've had a lot of experience with NGOs and, and other organizations. How do you think we should measure impact in the coffee sector? It's a good question. And again, impact is very broad term. So depends what we mean by impact, right? So for example, Mm -hmm. if we mean improving livelihoods, uh, which is basically the mission of pretty much every uh, specialty coffee company, more or less phrased differently, but that's really improving livelihoods at at origin, you would be measuring impact on, for example, what would be the margins that producers make on their coffee sales? Did you have some hard data, like economic data? Are you breaking even? Are you working for free? Uh, Which is, you know, so much unrecorded labor goes into coffee production. And then the quality of life. Are you meeting your basic needs? Do you have access to education, to food, and so forth? So it goes back to what do we mean by impact and how how do we classify impact? I think there's a lot of different categories. Impact could also be the, the growth of market share of specialty coffee. It's important to start putting some boundaries around the word, just like with digitalization. Um, yeah. 
or you know what data should we be collecting? I think it's a lot. It helps to break down that word impact into more uh, how you say size bite. Uh, uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Approach. So I think that that would be the best. But I definitely think that if we prioritize the well-being of producer organizations, uh, I would say that the impact is is quantified through economic, social, and again, we don't have to start from scratch. The through the United Nations, uh, we have uh, key performance indicators. There's been a lot of study on that. It's just a matter of maybe creating a an industry-led effort around mm-hmm. this. Yeah, no, that's good. I, I'm glad you brought up the fact that it's not a starting from scratch thing to try and measure impact because, yeah, there are organizations that have been investing in that kind of research for a long time. Do you believe collaboration plays a role in digitalization, or are we talking about one or a few companies who are just kind of doing all the work? What What is your vision for how this might play out or roll out on a global scale? The idea of one or two or three companies owning coffee digitalization can be quite risky because it can lead to a very unstructured balance of power um, and almost monopoly. So look at uh, some of the big uh, social media channels, um, you know, Facebook uh, or, or others. There is a lot of controversy on actually how much power they have been amassing thanks to the huge data that they can collect and, and, and monetize. So there is a risk in, in having just a couple of companies doing that. And we've seen in other sectors how hard it has been to regulate companies that uh, own such an incredible amount of data from, from individuals. Um, at the same time, uh, so I, I wouldn't like that. I would like collaboration to be a, a, a non-competitive, so pre-competitive collaboration. The problem is, of course, that uh, you know when it comes to pre-competitive collaboration, people don't have a ton of time, and companies obviously have their own mission. Um, so it's a, it's it's a challenge. But I think we're already seeing a pretty diverse landscape, especially at the at the supply chain level on different companies already putting forward uh, digital solutions. And I think we're in the right direction. In the end, I would say that the production phase and uh, the importing and exporting phase can be very, very different. So it's hard to standardize. So some softwares can be very good for some companies and others not. So sometimes, you know, like off-the-shelf solution can only serve a percentage of the market. So we're already seeing that we have at least four or five different software providers um, that collect the data and help, you know, maybe traceability system. I think that that's really, it's good to see so many people in that sphere. When it comes to collaboration at the pre-competitive level, I, I definitely think that it would be great to have an understanding as an industry on what kind of data that the industry need to move itself forward. And those data should be encouraged to be made public. Um, so if you look, for example, some of the information or the data that the Specialty Coffee Transaction Guide collected, I think that that was incredibly valuable for the industry as a benchmark and alternative to the C market. That data is anonymous. Uh, that data doesn't speak towards specific companies or specific producer organizations, but it's, it's an alternative to the C reference price. So that kind of data could, I think, would really benefit 
You may have noticed the audio struggling towards the end of this conversation. This is one of the downsides to recording an interview 9,000 kilometers away from your guest. But I want to highlight a few points Sarah makes in our conversation where the audio dropped. I asked, why should a company share their data? She responded by saying companies should only share their data if they want to, and the best environment for this kind of expectation is one that holds to a quid pro quo, in other words, if they know they will also get something back in return. Then I asked Sarah about her idea around what she calls, from cherry to heart. She said, quote, It's a value-added product and people have a relationship when they establish a connection, not just with the product, but everybody behind it. End quote. In my own words, she states that the heart is about how we get the consumer to appreciate coffee as a value-added product while also getting them to care about deeper issues in coffee. Now, I will reintroduce the audio with a ping indicating you may need to turn up your volume to listen. I will ping again when the audio will return to its original volume. So I'm working on, you know, mm-hmm. Vuna Origin Consulting is, is a as the name suggests, a consulting company. So I work with private companies and and, and, and donors on multiple different uh, projects, uh, most of them at origin. So currently, for example, I am I am working on a coffee sector assessment in Rwanda to try to determine how we can introduce maybe new policies to make the sector uh, more competitive. Um, so we're not drafting policies ourselves, but we are going to be advising policymakers on on how to repurpose uh, Rwandan coffee in the international market and, and grow consumption of Rwandan coffee. And if you check our website, you can get updated and then of course mm-hmm. on LinkedIn uh, that's where we post a lot of our work and uh, just participate in the coffee coffee discussion well, the best advice that I have been given was by my previous employer who once told me if you're comfortable you're probably not working hard enough and I mm. took it as a huge uh, insult. I did, I, as soon as I heard it, I was like, are you suggesting I'm not working hard? Um, <laughs> so I was really stressed by that. And you know, maybe at the time I wasn't uh, still used to a lot of the English expressions. So I, I, I was a little bit uh, yeah, puzzled by that. But I think later mm-hmm. on, I, I realized that, um, you know, especially when you're impact driven and you have a mission beyond just economic viability in your work. I think you constantly want to push yourself um, out of your comfort zone because that's when you learn the most and when you're also a little bit more vulnerable. Uh, But vulnerability is good in our sector, especially um, for people like, uh, like me. I hope you enjoyed the one-in-one on coffee data and digitalizing the coffee sector. We are going to continue a few more episodes in coffee science, so stay tuned for the next episodes. And as always, and until next time, happy brewing.